0: This is another episode of Connecting the Dots podcast. I'm Skip Stewart, Vice President and Chief Improvement Officer for Baptist Memorial Healthcare.
1: Hey, everybody. I'm H.F. Mason. I'm a general surgeon and chief medical officer at Baptist Memorial Hospital DeSoto and chief quality officer for the Baptist system.
2: And hi, everyone. I'm Jake Lancaster. I'm an internal medicine physician and the chief medical information officer for the Baptist system.
0: Well, we are so excited today we have Dr. Susan Ehrlich, the CEO at Zuckerberg, San Francisco General Hospital and Trauma Center. welcome, thank you so much for joining us dr. Ehrlich and can you tell us a little bit about yourself and your role there at Zuckerberg?
3: Sure well, first of all, thank you so much for having me. It's so nice to be here with you all today uh, on the podcast uh, My name is Susan Ehrlich. Uh, I am indeed the chief executive officer at Zuckerberg San Francisco General Hospital. I've had the privilege of serving in this role for almost exactly seven years. I just uh, passed my seven-year milestone. I'm a professor of medicine at UCSF, um, which is our academic partner here for the last 150 years. And uh, I am a primary care internist and I still see patients uh, I in fact see patients every Thursday morning. I have a panel of about a hundred patients I follow uh all the time. so that's a little bit about me,
1: well, Dr. Ehrlich, once again, thank you very much for uh being here and and i've I've said this on the podcast many times we get we are so excited when we have physicians on the podcast, uh especially physicians and leadership and as I've always said, most of us when we started out in medical school and did and our residency and started practicing, we had no idea that we were going to be in medical leadership. I, I know I sure didn't. I'm, I'm a small town general surgeon, and uh, here I am, a CMO now. I had no idea. Tell us a little bit about your journey of getting where you are.
3: Well, I'm a, a, I'm a little bit of an oddball. Um, sometimes I call myself a unicorn because um, if you start out uh, – First of all, I'm a female running a hospital. That's sure. that's pretty unusual still these days, unfortunately. Um, I am a physician, female running a hospital, and I'm a practicing doctor, physician, female running a hospital. I think that's a very, very tiny percentage of um, the CEO population. Um, proud to be in that position. Also, um, I had um, an unusual journey um, to becoming a doctor. I actually, my first graduate degree is in public policy, and I worked in that field, um, basically doing health policy, budget analysis, administration, uh, for some time before I went to medical school. So when I started medical school, I knew I wanted to combine medicine, clinical practice, and administration. So it wasn't so surprising to me that I would end up in this job. Did I imagine myself in this particular job? No, not necessarily. But I always knew I wanted to combine clinical practice, administration, and and health policy. So here I am.
1: That's great. Yeah, uh, no.
2: So very impressed. I I think we've only had maybe one other CEO physician that still saw patients on, and and I think his was more.
1: That was Eric Dixon at at UMass. Yeah, um,
3: I I know Eric very well. Yeah, so. we,
1: that was it. We enjoyed having him on the on the show.
3: He's and great.
1: It, it's always impressive to hear
2: how you're able to manage and balance the, the two roles, but also to hear, you know, you know the insights you gain from being a physician still and still practicing um, that impact your role as a CEO. Tell us a little bit about about that. Well, uh, it
3: it will come as no surprise to you that um, being a practicing physician, especially being a primary care internist, is incredibly informative for my role as CEO, uh, because I get to see when my patients go to the emergency department, when they get admitted to the hospital, when I make a specialty consult, so I can see what actually happens out there um, in in real life. And that is something that um, I wouldn't substitute for anything. I mean, obviously, it adds time to my job, um, but it is well worth it um, for me, both in terms of understanding what happens in the hospital uh, every day, but also uh, because it grounds me um, professionally, emotionally, practically in a lot of different ways. So, I I find it very, very important to my role.
2: Yeah. I, I mean, I think I learned more during the clinical hours about how the Possible system operating functions than in 50 meetings I have about the same topic. You can learn more in a shorter period of time. It seems like.
1: Oh yeah, I, I like I like it because when a new Epic update comes out and everybody's favorites are all messed up and they're complaining to you, and you say, "Yeah, I was round. I was making rounds yesterday, and I know exactly exactly what you're talking about." But Dr. Ehrlich, I I, I know that. Um, San Francisco General has been on a a, a a lean journey for about looks like maybe 12 years or so. It looks like you guys started back in 2011 trying to uh, become a lean hospital. Tell it what what kind of drove that change? Tell us a little bit about that.
3: Well, I wasn't here when the when it initially started, but I was very close by. Uh, My first job as, well, really out of residency, I started at San Mateo Medical Center, which is about 20 miles down the road. It is a sister safety net hospital. Um, uh, So we're, both organizations are publicly owned and operated, um, and our mission is to serve the entire community. So the vast majority of the patients we take care of are insured by Medicaid or Medicare uh, or have no insurance, so that this is the population that we really thrive in serving. Um, and uh, both hospitals were in a small cohort of uh, safety net hospitals in California who were exploring lean at the same time. Uh, so we, um, you know, we we went to other medical centers in the United States um, that were lean organizations, um, including Theta Care um so uh we we were learning together and then when this job came open they were really looking for a you know somebody who was devoted to lean practice so when i came in in 2016 the journey was well on its way and um it was a it was a perfect place for me and it still is uh because the way we lead here the way we operate here is really um, informed and guided um, by our lean uh, philosophy and and tools.
2: So it, it sounds like you had a, you had a few years of being there before the pandemic started, and so you know you were able to I guess start down your your lean journey um, pre pandemic. Yeah. But and, I'm really interested in your your public policy and your uh, public health background and how you know, with you being in a unique position as the CEO and a position and with that background and with this focus on lean, you know, how did that maybe change the way that you directed y'all's response to the pandemic compared to somebody without that sort of background skill set?
3: Well, um, it started before the pandemic, actually, because the three weeks um after I started in my in, in my position here in April of 2016, we moved into our new acute care tower. In mm-hmm. August of 2019, we went live with Epic. Um, and then the pandemic hit six months later. And we used our lean philosophy and tools for all of those major things. Um, I would say, especially for the Epic Go Live, um, we were able to uh put in epic and you all know what that is i mean that was a much bigger cultural change a much bigger deal than actually even moving into a new building um and we were able to do that on time on budget and by the time the pandemic hit six months later we were reasonably into our implementation and thank goodness because uh if we hadn't had epic (laughs) installed for the pandemic we would have really had a hard time responding as well as we did. Um, So in all those major events, um, we used our lean philosophy and tools to organize, think about, operationalize um, what we were doing. And in the city, interestingly, um, you know, we had quite a robust response to the to the pandemic. There was a giant command center that was set up in the city. That um, at, at at points in time had as many as of a thousand people, and that command center was actually led by a number of people from this hospital. And so the command center itself used lean uh, philosophy and tools uh, to organize itself and to respond, and it was really all about data driven improvement when it came down to it.
1: Dr. Ehrlich, I was looking at your your presentation from when you um, were in Arizona, and I really enjoyed it. Um, and I really like y'all's mission and vision and y'all's principles that y'all try to um, live by and operate by. But tell us tell us how important that foundation on that true north and the, those principle based behaviors how how they are to uh, driving a lean organization.
3: You're talking about the base of that triangle. It basically includes our six True North goals, which include equity, quality, safety, patient experience, workforce development, and financial stewardship. Those six True North goals guide all of our improvement work. And then at the base of that triangle is what we call the, the ZSFG way which is really our lean management system. Um, it's how we get people engaged um, in improvement and engaged in what I like to call uh, compassionate data-driven problem solving. And I think we do a pretty reasonable job at it. Um, we, we really, uh, virtually everything we do, any, any improvement we do is guided by, the, by those six True North goals by A3 thinking um, and by our overall lean management structure.
1: And, and we we have a similar management system here. We call it the Baptist management system. But but I like your management system pyramid because at the base it's on the it's it's the daily management that's done on the front line. And I think a lot of organizations they try to they try to build it from the top down. Where you really have to start on the front lines if if you truly want to drive uh, that improvement. And then you know your A3 thinking uh, for uh, you know, in in strategy deployment. Um, talk to us a little bit about how you uh, how you train your folks to uh, in the in the different tools that that you use. Do do y'all right. have structured structured training?
3: Oh yes, definitely. Um, and 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 just what you said before about. Um, leadership and frontline staff, you really need both. And it's interesting in the, you know, the many discussions I've had about lean over the years, it seems like the thing that is more often absent is leadership involvement, especially CEO and top level involvement. And you really do need that uh, to make big changes in the organization. Frontline staff, obviously, I mean, that's why we're here, right? For the to, to serve and support the frontline staff who are taking care of patients that's that's obviously key as well you really need both and everything in between to be engaged in this work you know and are we perfect at it of course not has the pandemic been hard on our efforts absolutely um i think you know now we're in a process of Really making sure that um, when now that we have the luxury of not responding to the pandemic, you know, all day, every day, um, it's really about regrouping and making sure that we we have all the pieces in place uh, for our our journey. Um, You talked about teaching. Um, We have just extraordinary teachers here. Um, we we have uh, our our CMO of our Kaizen Promotion Office, Dr. Hewen. Um, he is an outstanding A3 thinking teacher, and he and we and the team here have taught literally hundreds of people um, in A3 thinking, not just here at the hospital, but in the Department of Public Health, of which we're a part over time. Uh, so it's really um, it's quite robust. And really important um, in uh, to support all of our efforts.
2: So you you said a few times your your focus on data and and using that to drive your initiatives. Um, in your slides that, that you sent over, um, you had pieces on on using data for equity initiatives. I feel like that may be a new area for a lot of places that you know we tend to focus on, or we've in the just historically been. Uh, or had the data on quality, patient experience, financials, but we haven't even really collected it or paid as much attention to it from, from that same point. Walk us a little bit about um, on how y'all um, are using data that, in that way.
3: Well, um, becoming an equitable organization has long been a focus of ours, and there really is no way you can do that without looking at your data. And in fact, if you want to be a high-quality, um, safe hospital, you have to be looking at those data, because if you're not, you're not really truly understanding what are the barriers to achieving those things. Uh, so, for example, um, the presentation we talked about heart failure, which was uh, you know, a really important Metric for us, we were among the worst performers in heart failure readmissions in the state a number of years back. And we started to look at that data, and in particular, when we looked at the data by race and ethnicity and gender, we saw that the biggest driver of that that 30-day readmission rate for heart failure were our results among uh, black men. I mean, so disparate from our other population groups. So what we really needed to do was uh, design an intervention um, that worked for everybody, but but especially for black men. You know what was happening mm. with black men that was causing that uh, that to go bad. And so when we did that, um, we not only improved the rates for black men, but we improve, improved the rates for everybody, and we saw the disparities shrink. So I know the topic is often really uncomfortable for people, but when you when you look at it from a pure improvement uh, uh, perspective, I don't think you can really attack these problems without understanding the disparities. Because there are, when you start looking for disparities in medicine, you find them everywhere. And you find them in places that you really um, might be very surprised about.
1: I agree. And, And, you know, with all the the new joint commission requirements that are coming out that in, in health systems I mean we we can't we can ignore it and we have to uh you know we have to address it because it's there as you said but but you know I think if you approach it from a you know a data driven perspective these things just rear their heads if if you really dive into the data you know if you if you want to look at Congestive heart failure readmissions, and you weren't even thinking about health equity and health disparities, you would find it. Yeah, you know, it's it, it it comes out. Okay, gosh, our black men have a terrible readmission rate, and um, yeah, you you have to use the data.
2: Well, right. and if you don't look for it, I mean, I feel like you know, from the CMIO perspective, a lot of times they will, they try to some places will try to fix a problem by putting in a new order set, and so the heart failure readmission one comes up and, uh, you know, we have this discharge uh, order set for heart failure, but my, the, the thought is if you use the discharge order set, you're going to help with these uh, readmissions. But if you don't look at it from, you know, that social determinants of health, that equity standpoint that you just mentioned, you're, you're going to have the wrong intervention or you're going to, you know, double down on an intervention that's not going to affect the biggest driver, essentially.
3: Right. Yeah. And in this case, both of those things were important. So on the one hand, we did have an order set that included standard approach to diuresis, right? Making sure that every patient um, that we approached um, removing fluid from a patient's body in exactly the same way every time, right? And that doesn't that applies to everybody. And we also understood that one of the driving reasons that black men had uh terrible readmission rates is because the root cause of their heart failure was drug use. So we set up an outpatient clinic in our uh, primary care internal medicine clinic that included special specialists in addiction medicine. Um, so it was really, um, you know, a lot of different things, some of which applied to everybody and some applied to specific populations.
1: You guys are... You know using lean to serve you know the underserved populations which is which is really cool.
3: thank you. we think so.
1: I want to ask you something you know we always we always get around to the i don't know if it's really an elephant in the room, but when we talk about physicians and trying to engage the physicians and trying to get them involved in in your lean transformation and trying to get them aligned with you. It's a big barrier. I mean, and and I say that as a physician because I've been that barrier before. What are some of the strategies and tactics that you guys use to uh, to get buy-in from the medical staff?
3: Well, you know, it's so interesting because here we've found that our physicians are actually the most eager to do work in this way. And I'm not exactly sure why that is, but. Um, if you think about what an A3 is, it's really like a soap note, right? Um, you're, you're looking, you're, you're describing the current state, you're, you're, you understand what your target state is going to be, you look at the data to try to understand what the difference is between those two things, and then you have a plan going forward. So it's very similar, I think, to what we do as internists anyway. Um, even surgeons, you know, approach medicine this way. Yeah, um, we have <laughs> trouble with the surgeons still.
1: They're, they're My plan is always just see, see medicine's note. No, I, I'm teasing. I'm
3: teasing. So am I. Uh, but it, it's been, uh, it's really resonated with our physicians here. And we have just some outstanding physician leaders who are, um, who are leading our lean efforts overall. Uh, so our chief of performance excellence is a physician. Um, we're actually having a transition. You know, we're transitioning from an anesthesiologist to an emergency medicine physician. But so we've had all kinds of specialists really um, be interested in this kind of work.
2: You know, one thing that, that sometimes happens when you have new initiatives or or involved physicians and in, they will question the data. Um, you know the accuracy of the data. Have you found that from the looking at it from the equity lens? Um, are you are, are people questioning what you're finding, or has how has that gone over?
3: Right. I mean that that's that's pretty standard that people will question data, and and some of that is is appropriate, right? We want to make sure that the data we're looking at is really reflects what's actually happening. Um, with respect to the equity data, we've had enough. Uh, practice, I think, and enough time in looking at disparities uh, across all of our departments, um, both clinical and operational, to just not be surprised when these disparities show up. Because it is rare. It is the rare circumstance where you have a department that starts exploring performance in any area, and they don't find a disparity. So, um, you know, when when we started Working on equity as one of our true North, North goals back in 2016, one of the first things we did was make sure that pe- the people who were entering the data about race, ethnicity, gender, uh, language, that they were doing it accurately every time. Because this is where you can really lose your way, is if you're, you know, if you find that your registration clerks are making assumptions about somebody's race or ethnicity or or their gender for that matter and you're not getting it accurate each time then um that's the that's the basis of the work you have to be doing so we we put a lot of emphasis on that um in the beginning and that is that has served us really well
1: you know and it's interesting how you say that sometimes the data will surprise you we we have 22 different hospitals and you know if if you're looking at ntsv Rate data. You know, we have some hospitals where, if you're a black woman, you may be more likely to get a a a C a C-section, whereas others it, it's it's exactly the opposite. And that's what we're trying to dive into and trying to find out. Well, why why is that? And why is there such a difference between, you know, just maybe a few hundred miles down the road, but there's a big difference in um, in how people are treated.
3: Hmm. What are you finding?
1: You know, well, you know, we'll have to have you on the podcast again because I can't. I, we haven't come to any <laughs> conclusions, and I'll have to, uh, I'll have to give you some follow up.
3: That would be great. Yeah, sure. that's really important disparity to understand.
2: Yeah, you know that that's been a tough, tough crack for us. Um, you know, one of the things I think in your slides that you know, clean for equity is it, it makes some people uncomfortable from time to time so even just having discussion with some physicians or, or not just physicians but others uh, as part of the system um you know they they're afraid to to have the conversation because you know they're worried that they'll come across as they're biased or racist or something along those lines how you know, how have y'all Manage those conversations around, you know, just what to expect with that uh, feeling of discomfort.
3: Yeah, there's no doubt about it that these conversations are really uncomfortable. And, you know, I don't think there's any way of um, addressing equity unless you put effort into helping people have the conversations. And this is something that we actually have measured, not just as a hospital, but as a department over time. Um, and you know, it, it involves a lot of education. Um, it involves a lot of practice, um, and it involves doing the work of improving the disparities. Um, so we can actually see, um, in our, uh, staff engagement surveys, how comfortable we actually ask people, how comfortable do you feel talking about these topics? And then of course we look at that by, Mm. you know, Race, ethnicity, you know, as well as age and gender, so we can see how people's comfort level changes over time. And then, of course, we can also see the difference between how people feel we're performing. So those things are really important because that gives you the information you need to address these issues even further, um, both at a you know a hospital or a, a department population level as well as within uh, Specific groups.
2: So, have you seen that measure move? You know, they're they're we've seen it move a little bit,
3: yes. Um, And when we still have disparities, Um, and generally the disparities we see um, are that uh, we do, you know, our black and Latinx staff don't feel that we're moving the needle as well as our white and Asian staff do, and so. That is something that now those disparities are coming down, but that is something that we really need to continue to work on. Overall, we see people being more comfortable with the conversations, which is great because that's the first step in addressing the disparities. You
1: talked about seeing comfort level. Do you see a big difference in, in the age of your staff? You know, the younger people are a lot more comfortable. It seems. It seems anecdotally that young people are a lot more comfortable discussing it than, than than the older older folks like Skip.
3: That's <laughs> Skip and I are the same age, <laughs>
2: um
3: I I don't know the data well enough, but I'll I'll have to take a look at that and let you know. Um especially our most recent data which is just coming out now. Um we just we just did a survey not long ago. But that that's an interesting uh thing to look at.
1: And, you know, one of the things that we're, we were looking at and we've talked about a lot here uh, and I know Jake Jake's has another podcast uh, called Right Care at Baptist and had a guest on there. And they were talking about diagnostic overshadowing. And that was something, you know, a term that I had really. Wasn't even familiar with uh, until a few years ago, and then I started looking at my own practice and, and I was like, yeah, I mean, you come into my office and if you're taking Lyrica, Neurontin, Norco, You know, I'm gonna, and you have you know vague abdominal pain. I'm gonna I'm gonna look at you a little bit differently, based on your medication list than I would somebody else. And it it, it's all over the place once you start looking for it. And and if you're honest enough with yourself to recognize it.
0: Yes, indeed. Well, Doctor Ehrlich, this has been fantastic. I'm gonna ask one question to close us out. and i want to get into the mind of the ceo you know um, we, we use the shingo institute uh, as a uh, filter and uh, and so when you think about all the opportunities that you have there at uh, zuckerberg san francisco general hospital and trauma center um and you think about uh, whether it's how well your strategic efforts are deployed and aligned all the way to the front level or whether it's you're thinking about certain quality at the source elements of, you know, infection rates, or maybe you're thinking around flow and pull. How well, do, how well do the patients actually flow through the system or or do they not flow? I could keep on going. What What's one thing, if I only put you in a corner and said, tell me one thing with a magic wand you wish uh, that through your lean effort in the next year, you would see a big improvement in, what would it be?
3: Gosh, well, I, I, I've narrowed it down to two. Okay, I'll take them. <laughs> so one is just the, the, the health and wellness and joy of our, our staff. Mm. Um, that is such a huge issue for all of us coming out of the pandemic. And we can't do anything without our team being joyful and engaged, right? And then I would say the second thing is about flow. I mean, I know this is an international problem. That yeah. you know we can't get people out of the hospital, you know, to get the right care in the right place at the right time. So I would say right now those things are are the biggest things on my mind.
0: Well, you somehow gave me comfort on the second one that made me feel like I wasn't all alone. So <laughs> thank you <laughs> me, so me much. Me too, because
1: it's flow and link to stay, flow link to stay and flow, flow <laughs> exactly. link to stay.
0: Exactly. Well, well, Dr. Ehrlich, thank you so much for your leadership. Uh, thank you so much. Uh, for being a leader and, and getting involved with this work. And we are so incredibly grateful for you. And and we just so appreciate you uh, joining us on the podcast. And on behalf of Baptist Memorial Healthcare, we appreciate you so much. We hope that you'll come back in the future again. And we just really appreciate your leadership. We look forward to continuing to learn from everything that's going on uh, there at uh, Zuckerberg San Francisco General Hospital and Trauma Center.
3: Thank you. It's been a privilege. I really appreciate
0: having time. Thanks a lot, Dr. Ehrlich.